and welcome back to History Obscura. This past week has been a bit of a vacation for me. I left the entire coven of cats in the hands of a meow check specialist and headed to Banff and Canmore in Alberta to spend some time in the mountains. I took afternoon tea at the Lake Louise Fairmont, checked out Banff Springs Hotel, including the famous staircase. I'm going to post that on Instagram, by the way. If you don't know the story, check in. And stopped at an awesome little bookshop in Lake Louise, where a nice South African lady sold me a copy of A Hunter of Peace, which is basically a modernized version of Mary T.S. Schaefer's Old Indian Trails of the Canadian Rockies. Because, of course, the first book that I did see was the original Old Indian Trails of the Canadian Rockies in its original print for $500, which I did not produce. So I produced $32 and came home with this nice, softcover, modern version. Mary Schaefer was one of the people responsible for pushing the Alberta government to protect and preserve what is now Banff National Park. So please... Let me read to you from A Hunter of Peace. Chapter 1. An Explanation Twenty years ago, 99% of the tourists to the section of the Rockies of Canada mentioned in these pages flitted across the country as bees across flower garden and were gone. There were comparatively few of them, and but a small modicum of enthusiasm distributed among them. Banff contained a hostelry, which swallowed all who came and left few visible, so small was the number. Lake Louise boasted no hotel at all. We slept in tents in 93, and from our door looked out upon that magnificent scene with chattering teeth and shivering bodies, and vowed never again to camp in the Canadian Rockies. Field, with her splendid drives and trails and Yoho Valley today, was an insignificant divisional point and eating station. Glacier, a tiny, picturesque chalet, cuddled close to the railroad track as though to shield her from the dark forests behind her. It was full to the brim if so many as a dozen stopped off to view the one sight of those days, the Great Glacier. At that time, no one dreamed of the fascinating caves only seven miles away, hidden and unknown in an even more fascinating valley. However, over an infinitesimally few, those mountains had thrown a glamour, and a spell so persistent and so strong that with the first spring days, no matter where they be, warm breezes brought the call. Come back. Come back to the blue hills of the Rockies. And we went, went year by year, watched the little chalets grow, watched the pushing of the trails into new points of interest, watched with veiled and envious eyes our secret haunts laid bare to all who came. And they did come, fast and furious. Steam heat and hot and cold water had done their work. The little tents on the shores of Lake Louise with their balsam bow beds and an atmosphere reeking with health and strength to those weary with the city's life, were banished and only found again by the determined few who have heard of the recently discovered Moraine Lake, Lakes O'Hara and MacArthur, and Ptarmigan and Yoho Valleys. 
Point by point, we led them all, each one of them a stronghold at civilization's limits, each one of them a kindergarten of the at-first despised camping life. In them, we learned the secret of comfort, content, and peace on very little of the world's material goods. Learned to value at its true worth the great unlonely silence of the wilderness, and to revel in the emancipation from frills, furbelows, and small follies. But the tide swept on. With jealous eyes, we watched the silence slipping back, the tin cans and empty fruit jars strewn across our sacred soil. The mark of the axe grow more obtrusive. Even the trails cleared of the debris, so hard to master, yet so precious from the fact it must be mastered to succeed. Where next? Driven from our Eden, where should our tents rise again? We were growing lost and lonesome in the great tide, which was sweeping across our playground, and we longed for wider views and new, untrammeled ways. With willing ears, we listened to the tales brought in by the hunters and trappers, those men of this land who are the true pioneers of the country, in spite of the fact that they have written nothing and are but little known. With hearts not entirely on pelts, they have seen and now told us of valleys of great beauty, of high, unknown peaks, of little-known rivers, of unnamed lakes, lying to the north and northwest of the country we knew so well. A fairyland, yet a land girt about with hardships, a land whose highway was a difficult trail or no trail at all. We fretted for the strength of man, for the way was long and hard, and only the tried and stalwart might venture where cold and heat, starvation and privation stalked ever at the explorer's heels. In meek despair, we bowed our heads to the inevitable, to the cutting knowledge of the superiority of the endurance of man, and the years slipped by. From the States came Allen and Wilcox, men, of course who gathered their outfits together and left us sitting on the railroad track, following them with hungry eyes as they plunged into the distant hills, to listen just as hungrily to the campfire tales on their return of all the wonders of the more northern Rockies. Came Strutfield, Collie, Woolly, Outram, names so well known in the Alpine world today, to tell again our eager listening ears of the vast glorious, unexplored country beyond. Came Faye, Thompson, and Coleman, all men. There are few women who do not know their privileges and how to use them, yet there are times when the horizon seems restricted, and we seemed to have reached that horizon, and the limit of all endurance, to sit with folded hands and listen calmly to the stories of the hills we so longed to see, the hills which had lured and beckoned us for years before this long list of men had ever set foot in the country. Our cups splashed over. Then we looked into each other's eyes and said, Why not? We can starve as well as they. The muskeg will be no softer for us than for them. The ground will be no harder to sleep upon. The water's no deeper to swim, nor the bath colder if we fall in. So, we planned a trip. 
But instead of railing at our predecessors, we were to learn we have much for which to thank them. Reading the scanty literature which dealt with their various expeditions, we had absorbed one huge fundamental fact almost unconsciously, that though this was a land of game, of goat, sheep, bear, deer, and caribou, one might pass through the country for days yet see no signs of wildlife. Fish there are in plenty, yet for weeks, when the summer sun melts everything meltable and the rivers are clouded with silt from the glaciers, they will not rise to the most tempting bait, and the grouse disappear as though by magic. Throughout the limited literature ran this simple ever-present fact, a beautiful but inhospitable land, and the cause of many an unfinished or abandoned expedition, and a hasty retreat to the land of bread and butter. Thanking our informants for their unconscious hint, we led our plans both long and deep. Our initial experience of one night's camp on the shores of Lake Louise, when we had felt frozen to the bone, and had at the time promised ourselves never to do such a trick again, had been augmented by a flight of three days to Yoho Valley when it was not Yoho Valley. Only a lovely unknown bit of country. Another chilly experience at Moraine Lake. A pause, then a week in the Ptarmigan Valley, and later a sortie of five weeks in the Saskatchewan country. In these trips, we had gathered a few solid facts, and surely with them we were more or less prepared for a whole summer in the country of which so little was known. In spite of the protests of anxious relatives and friends, our plans were laid for a four-month trip during the summer of 1907, and a vow made not to return till driven back by the snows. The guide-in-chief was our most important factor. To whom should we more naturally turn than to him who had watched over us in the days of our camp swaddling clothes, who had calculated the amount of our first camp fare given us our first lessons in camp comforts, and in fact our very first lessons in sitting astride a horse and learning to jump a log without being shot over the head of our steed. Three years' acquaintance had taught us his value, and as he did not turn us down but kindly spurred us on in our undertaking and cheerfully assumed the leadership, he made us feel we had worn a considerable amount of the tenderfoot from our compositions. Having always kept a strict account of the amount of food he had packed over the trails for us on our shorter expeditions, it became a mere matter of arithmetic for a longer one. If so many pounds of bacon lasted us seven weeks, how many pounds of bacon would last sixteen weeks? And so, through the entire gamut of the food supply, flour, baking powder, cocoa, coffee, tea, sugar, dried fruits, evaporated potatoes, beans, rice, etc., with a week's extra rations thrown in for emergency. On him fell the entire responsibility of choosing and buying the best outfit of horses, saddlery, blankets, the hundred and one things needed and so apt to be forgotten, for in this land to which we were going there were no shops, only nice little opportunities for breaking and losing our few precious possessions. It was his care also to choose the second guide to accompany us. 
not so easy a matter as it looks. This fourth member of our party must know how to cook a bannock that would not send one to bad dreams after a hard day's travel, to fry a piece of bacon exactly right, to boil the rice and make bean soup, all at the campfire. It sounds simple, but try it. He must be equally skillful in adjusting the packs, that there be no sore backs. He must have a fund of patience, such as Job was never forced to call upon, and a stock of good nature that would stand any strain. The man, the horses, and the food, our chief found them all. And here, to him, I give the credit of our success, claiming only for ourselves the cleverness of knowing a good thing when we saw it. It is an inhospitable land. They who first tore the secrets from those hills have recorded it so, by their experiences, we profited. The wise head at the helm steadied the ship, and all was well. And so in the east, the early spring days went by at a snail's pace, with a constant discussion as to the best airbed, the proper tents and their size, the most enduring shoe, etc., with trials and tests of condensed foods, ending mostly in trials. There are a few of these foods which are well worth having, and there are some of them which we were profoundly thankful we had tried before carting across the continent. For instance, beware of the dried cabbage. No fresh air in existence will ever blow off sufficient of the odor to let it get safely to the mouth. Granulose was a strongly recommended article to save carrying so much of that heavy and perishable, yet almost necessary substance, sugar. The label on the neat, small bottles read, One half ounce granulose equal to one ton of sugar, price one dollar. Who would dream of passing such a bargain? Too good to be true. Yet we did believe, and were soon the proud possessors of one ton of condensed sweetness, as also a stock of dried milk and dried eggs. Truth compels me to state that each of the three has its limitations, and to this day I wonder if that dried milk had ever seen a cow, or if any hen would acknowledge the motherhood of those dried eggs. To the inventor or discoverer of granulose, I should like to whisper that I thought he had got slightly mixed in his arithmetic. If he had said his dollar's worth of granulose was only equal to 30 pounds of sugar, he would have been nearer correct and we would not have had to eat so many puddings and cakes without sweetening. The section of country which had so long been our dream lies in the Canadian Rocky Mountain Range, directly north of that portion which is penetrated by the Canadian Pacific Railway. It is bounded by latitudes 51 and 30 minutes, and 52 and 30 minutes, and longitudes 116 to 118. Our chief aim was to penetrate to the headwaters of the Saskatchewan and Athabasca rivers. To be quite truthful, it was but a name. An excuse for our real object was to delve into the heart of an untouched land, to tread where no human foot had trod before, to turn the unthumbed pages of an unread book, and to learn daily those secrets which dear Mother Nature is so willing to tell those who seek. So the Saskatchewan and Athabasca sources 
were a little pat answer which we kept on hand for the invariable question, Goodness, whatever takes you two women into that wild, unknown region? It seems strange at first to think we must announce some settled destination, that the very fact of its being a wilderness was not enough. But we could not be blind to the fact that nine-tenths of our loving relatives and friends thought us crazy, and the other tenth listened patiently as I ruminated aloud. There is no voice, however famed, that can attune itself to the lonely corners of the heart, as the sigh of the wind through the pines when tired eyes are closing after a day on the trail. There is no chorus sweeter than the little birds in the early northern dawn, and what picture can stir every artistic nerve more than to gaze from some deep green valley to stony crags far above, and see a band of mountain sheep in rigid, statuesque pose, watching every move of the unknown enemy below? Why must so many cling to the life of our great cities, declaring there only may be heart hunger, the artistic longings, the love of the beautiful be satisfied, and thus train themselves to believe there is nothing beyond the little horizon they have built for themselves. Why must they settle so absolutely upon the fact that the lover of the hills and the wilderness drops the dainty ways and habits with the conventional garments and becomes something of a coarser mold? Can the free air sully? Can the birds teach us words we should not hear? Can it be possible to see in such a summer's outing one sight as painful as the daily ones of poverty, degradation, and depravity of a great city. I was so strongly impressed with this very idea one day, as it came unwittingly from a dear friend who had no idea she was letting the cat out of the bag, that I cannot resist speaking of it. She had taken the keenest interest in all our wanderings, had listened by the hour, Yes, quite true. If we would but get upon our hobby and showed a sincere pride in introducing us as her friends, the explorers. The true explorer had better skip this part. Broad-minded and sympathetic, even her thoughts were more or less tinged with the conventional coloring. Here is her introduction. My friend, the little explorer who lives among the Rocky Mountains and the Indians for months at a time, far, far in the wilderness. You would not expect it, would you? She does not look like it, does she? She had to look some other way, should she not? And then her listeners all bowed and smiled and noted the cut of my garments and said it really was wonderful. And I could have said, not half so wonderful as that you do not know the joys of moccasins after ordinary shoes that there is a place where hat pins are not the mode and the lingerie waste a dream, that there are vast stretches where the air is so pure, body and soul are purified by it, the sight so restful that the weariest heart finds repose. Is it possible in such environments for the character to coarsen and the little womanliness to be laid aside? No, believe me, there are some secrets you will never learn, there are some joys you will never feel. There are heart thrills you can never experience till, with your horse, you leave the world, your recognized world, and plunge into the vast unknown. 
and all the thanks you will give us will be, why did you not tell us to go before? Why have you been so tame with your descriptions? We never guessed what we should find. Alas, it takes what I have not, a skilled pen. Perhaps the subject is too great, and the picture too vast for one small steel pen and one human brain to depict. At least, it is a satisfaction to think the fault is not my own. Mary Schaffer was the first non-Indigenous person, and certainly the first non-Indigenous woman, to explore much of Jasper and Banff National Parks, as they are called now. She documented her travels through notes and photography, which she later hand-colored and can be found in the modern version of her book. Thanks for listening. I'm glad to have shared this story with you today. Remember, you can always support the podcast at buymeacoffee.com forward slash history obscura or patreon.com forward slash history obscura or at the tea public links show ads are automated through podbean and i hope they are not too distressing but if so you can let me know or sign up for the ad free stream that's weekly ad free episodes through patreon thanks a lot good night <laughs>